Hello, I'm Zoe Pollock, Artistic Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Love and Wonder, a series of collected conversations recorded live at the 2022 Byron Writers Festival, held on the lands of the Arakwal people of the Bundjalung Nation. This session, titled The Companionship of Gardens, features Costa Georgiades, Matthew Evans and Indira Naidu in conversation with Anne-Maria Nicholson. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome to our session, Soul Food, The Companionship of Gardens. With me in the blue corner is middleweight gardening champion, Matthew Bruiser Evans. <laughs> Who loves soil so much, he could uh, probably knock up a delicious meal uh, using it. Maybe some mud pies, Matthew? Uh, yeah, yeah, potentially. <laughs> I was just reading about geophagy with people eating soil, pregnant women eating soil, different oh. cultures. The potato well, became edible because we probably cooked it in soil and ate it with soil. Yeah, okay, yeah. we'll explore that then. And Matthew, of course, his latest book is called Soil, the incredible story of what keeps the earth and us happy. And with me in the red corner is bantamweight champion, <laughs> compost king and worm whisperer, Costa Georgiadis. <laughs> whose new book is called Costa's World, and don't we all want to be part of that glorious world? <laughs> Welcome to both our gentlemen. Thank you. Yay. Now, of course, since we're talking about gardens, I wanted to find out from the blokes what's happening in their gardens, in Matthew's case, his farm, what's growing. And I thought I'd start with my garden. So I've got a tiny 20 square metre garden on my 13th floor balcony in Potts Point in my apartment block. Uh, so a very small garden by anyone's standards. I've got about eight or nine pots at the mo moment, so it's a bit smaller than the normal, but I'm growing edible cabbages, greens, mustard greens. I've got a dwarf my lemon tree in a pot. I've got a two metre high curry leaf tree, which is my, my pride and joy. Lots and lots of herbs growing as well. Uh, but I wanted to ask the guys, maybe I can go to Matthew first, since he has the biggest garden, a farm. Yeah. What's growing on at the Fat Pig Farm at the moment, Matthew? Uh, moss. Moss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, southern Tasmania. So we grow some good moss at this time of year and a lot of grass. Uh, well, not as much grass as I'd like because the soil's a bit cold. In our actual garden, like the market garden, which we grow 50, 60 species of annual vegetable, we've got brassicas, so we've got lots of um, kale, um, kale, uh, <laughs> kale, <laughs> silver beet, um, cavolo nero, Tuscan kale, um, and... So the kale's doing really well? Well, yeah, like this is the... Yeah, we're, we passed the, the peak of the winter. We've, we've harvested most of the broccoli, all of the, the cauliflower. The last of the Brussels sprouts came out this week. Um, we, we're still harvesting carrots and beets and stuff like that, but nothing, we can't... There's, there's going to be a, what we call the hungry patch soon, so we're about to go into that. Broad beans and garlic are about the only two things we'll get out of the garden apart from kale for the next three months. Well, that's still exciting because yeah. garlic's one thing I've never been able to grow on my balcony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, and that's the, that's the beautiful thing. We, we harvest the garlic when it looks like a leek, spring garlic, um, before it forms a bulb because last year's garlic is sprouting and, and, and spring garlic is, for any gardeners, we all know this, that it's, it's actually like garlic but um, better. 
you know, and it's hard to think of garlic being better than garlic. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> now, Costa, we know we see you jumping around all over the continent, so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're not home that much, but what is the state of your garden? Is anything growing in it? Yeah, good question. Um, I'm, I'm very long at the moment on chocos. <laughs> so I realised a little while ago, about a month ago, I went up to the Cairns. Cairns have this big Greek festival and I went up there and, like, the chocos were going for, like, um, three bucks each or something. And I thought, oh, my God, I could have just retired. <laughs> um, <laughs> But the funny thing about my chocos is that it's grown up over this massive euphorbia. So the euphorbia, like someone asked me, oh, is that the fruit of the euphorbia? <laughs> and I said, no, no, that's just this massive tree with the chocos hanging down. And the best part was that it's been really windy and wet in Sydney over the last month and a half. And so I come home at night and I look down the footpath and it's like potted landmines. There's all these <laughs> chocos on the footpath. So I have to go down and pick them up, put them on the bench. So... Um, yeah, I've had a good crop of them. I've just been giving them away. I had to do a photo session because the show, we have a, we can't fit 40 episodes into 52 weeks and there's six weeks over Christmas, so we have to find six weeks. So we decided after having done enough repeats for a few years, we have to have a break. And so coming back after the break, there's a little bit of publicity and they wanted to send a, a crew out to take some photos of me in the garden. So it was great because it forced me to squeeze in around everything else, preparing the garden for the spring. So I got out there, so all my beds on the street are ready to just be turned over and planted out. So in that sense, um, it's mainly what I've got up on my balcony, which is lettuces, lots of different herbs, um, and there's a little bit of um, rapa, chima di rapa, oh. uh, which just keeps coming back, canola which just keeps coming back on the street, which I leave at this time of the year for the pollinators because mm. it's been up for a couple of months and I just leave it there and, and then the bees are all happy and I just pick leaves off and drop it in my salad. So yeah. there's a bit going on, but uh, I'm ready for the... It's important the to do that. I've been doing that with my rocket. I've just let that all go to flower and the bees are loving it. Yeah. Yeah. It's important just not to pull it out once it's finished, you know, making the big leaves, to leave it in there for the other critters, Right. Yeah, that's part of the ecosystem. So, uh, you know, anyone who's got the space, if you can, any time you can let anything go, uh, go to flower, especially if it flowers in winter, you know, when the bees are really hungry, perfect. Yeah. And, and it's not equally, as Matthew said, it's, it's about the flowering, but I think we need to go to that next step and allow the plant to exercise its full life cycle and celebrate its death and drying up because that provides architecture for another range of beneficial insects like the paper wasps, native bees and all sorts of things to come in. So leave those humble heads up there. And I had the most beautiful moment when some um, um, cluster bees came into my yard only because I didn't get all anal and say, well, that's finished, let's cut it off. Mm -hmm. And they came and I've never experienced that in my whole life. And this was this cluster of bees. And it's funny how you immediately go, oh, well, they're here, they're... And, and I was like, I was so excited. And I came out the next day and they were gone. And I had this feeling of, oh. And then I thought, hey, numpty, you don't own them, right? <laughs> just, just be thankful that they came. And I took some photos and a video and I spoke to them. And you know what happened? The moment I let that go, 
I started to walk back to the house and there they were in the bottle brush. Mm. They'd just moved. And it was a great, it was a great reminder that, mm. you know, nature is ours to ogle over and be in awe of, not try and own it because mm. we can't. I wanted to explore that addiction to gardening that all three of us have and obviously many people in this audience this afternoon do and where that came from with the two of you. I've got a paragraph to kick us off from my new book, The Space Between the Stars, where I talk about the power of gardening in terms of healing and what a beautiful space it is for, for people to heal. And uh, I, I say, pottering away in this tiny nook in the sky over the past few years, I've learned some pertinent lessons about life and death and how survival is never guaranteed. I can tenderly plant all these seedlings and nurture them attentively, watering and weeding, and still some will not make it. And yet here I am, trowel in hand, mixing fresh potting mix and compost into my tubs with the optimism of a first-time gardener. And at its crux, that's the addiction of anyone with the garden bug, the chance to play God in a small way, to give life to something that would not have had that opportunity without your intervention. So I know Costa and Matthew would have felt that addiction and that, you know, that joy when you see, plant a seed and see it take uh, sprout. <clears throat> oh, yes, someone got some water for the lady. You okay? I wanted to ask you where your passion for... <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Oh, there you go. Thank you very much. The constant gardener, always watering his flock. <laughs> I um, wanted to ask both of you where your passion for gardening came from. Do you remember your first exposure to that first garden that, you know, excited you, Matthew? Um, uh, no. <laughs> Well, no, but no, no. I, I grew I grew up with a family um, who'd moved from England uh, to oh. Canberra, and it was really lots of clay, lots of rocks, no real soil, harsh winters, harsh hard summers. They weren't really into it, so I didn't grow up around gardens. But I do remember this moment when I was actually um, uh, I was a restaurant critic for the Sydney Morning Herald, and I was eating really fancy food, and I was actually in a, in a garden in back in Canberra. A gardener's kitchen, actually, and the gardener was sitting there, and we, he was making a tomato and lettuce sandwich. And he was, while we were chatting, and he's making this sandwich, and then we were eating the sandwich. He was pulling all the seeds out of the tomato and putting them on the back of envelopes. And um, and I, and I remember having walked through his garden, he's showing me the soil, and I'm looking at the soil, going boring, um, and and because I wasn't a gardener, right? You know, he's talking about yeah what he does, you know. Compost, compost, I don't know what he was talking about, but um, it was a lot, I wasn't a gardener, like I wasn't absorbing it. But mm. what I was interested in was this amazing, amazing lettuce and tomato sandwich. Mm. And then I was, you know, the next day eating in the most expensive restaurant in Sydney or whatever, and I'm, I'm going, oh, their lettuce isn't as good. And, and that was the moment when I went, oh, the bloke yesterday was talking about all this stuff that was just going straight over my head or under my feet. Uh, mostly, and and uh, and I didn't understand, and it was at that, that moment I went, hang on, he's growing better food than I've had in the best restaurants in Australia, mm. and this is a guy that no one's ever heard of, and no one ever will hear of, and and you know, he wouldn't ever let a camera near him or a journalist near him normally, and th and that was the moment I went, this is magic, mm. creating something not only tangible but nutritious and utterly delicious from soil, sunlight, water, and air. It's the it's the original miracle. Mm. I want a part of that. 
Yeah, so it was a taste epiphany. Yeah, yeah, yeah because I'm a glutton. I'm only self-interest in pretty much everything. <laughs> and, 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 and I thought, this is giving me pure joy. You know, like I'm getting pure joy from, from the plants but, but through the action of a human. The human became involved in that. And, and the, 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 ex, the expression you know, of his, he expressed his, his soul um, with the treatment of soil. And, that, and I could taste that yeah. in, in the leaves and yeah. tomato that I ate. And I thought, this is, this is transformational. You know, like this person, their personality, how much they care, the soil that they nourish and look after is transformed into something I actually can ingest and becomes part of my, essentially part of my DNA and my microbiome and whatever, but it gave me pleasure. Yeah. What about you, Costa? Do you remember that first garden that you found magic in? Yeah, just on, on your point there, Matthew, like that, that's like the most intimate thing. Like the most imp- intimate thing that can happen is to put something inside your body because our body's designed to repel the world of diseases and pathogens. Yet, you know, to really celebrate that flavour, I mean, that's kind of... That's it. I, there's nothing... You can't buy... You can't buy prayer port air, apply this kind of balm. <laughs> you know, that's, that's balm in the... You know, literally inside the body. But for me, I think... Indira, would going to my grandparents' place was like going to Garden Disneyland um, because they lived and breathed everything you talked about, that, that love, that the gardening. Like, I'd get to the top of the stairs and it was just like this. It was about the same height. You, get, you go through the house and if you didn't smell the food that my grandmother was cooking, they were both out there, but somewhere and you get to the top of the back stairs and just go where are they and you know my grandfather would be sort of like this <laughs> and then there'd be a little bit of shoulder exposed and he'd be like oh there he is but then on your way there he'd go oh the strawberries and along the path which was this gun barrel path he'd use he'd use tiles old tiles to create a level change so that they could cascade over and that would create a little bit of heat there and you just go along and lift the leaves and have a strawberry. And they were the sweetest, tastiest, mm. freshest things like that lettuce. And they were the lollies of my addiction. Mm. Like, that, that was the gateway drug back then <laughs> when I was, you know, two years old, barely walking, just clambering through there. So, yeah, that garden, um, I see it so clearly in my mind. I, I could walk you through. I know where the... Orchids were all racked up because my grandmother loved the scent of the orchids and if you came in the house and there was an orchid in there, you knew it from the time you hit the front balcony and, and then you walked down the back and there was that distinct smell of chickens and pigeons and geese. Like, there was everything. And, I mean, he was... They... What am I talking about? Because my grandmother was as mongrel in the garden as my grandfather was. She loved flowers as well. But my grandfather loved flowers too, so that's why I... There's, there's no gender issues around flowers and, and beauty in my life because I saw it from, from all sides. But that's where it began. Mm. I love all sorts of gardens. I, I get excited if I just see a little potted plant on someone's windowsill or on their desk in their office because, to me, that is a garden as well. It doesn't have to be yeah. big. It doesn't have to be hugely significant. Uh, that, to me, excites me. But I wanted to ask... What's the most beautiful garden or farm space that you both have been in that has just taken your breath away? You've been lost for words by 
its beauty, or the, or the passion of the people who have been maintaining it and creating it? <laughs> that's no small question, is it? Yeah, that's a oh, oh that's a big one. Um, uh, look, I think this is it's going to sound really stupid, but it's actually the garden on our farm, the market garden on our farm, which I don't really look after. I'm a labourer in our market garden. Um, and I think it, it's because it has resonance. I walk in and um, we, we, we grow so many different things. There's so much, you know, different root architecture. We have insect hotels, we have perennial plants, you know, and there's always something to find. And, and I guess it's, it's just that um, connection that I have to that garden, even though I'm not really very good, in, in, you know, I don't do enough work in that garden because my garden is the farm as a whole. Um, but, but one of the things that, that did strike me the most and the thing that, that, that blew my mind in terms of, and it's not really a garden either, it was a farm, it was in, it was in Gippsland where I, I visited this, this bloke who was, who, who's got this way of seeding soil to, to really nourish soil and, and um, being on his land, I'd heard about chocolate cake soil, you know, that sort of texture of chocolate cake, you know, um, this good soil should be brown and, you know, porous and crumble when you, you crumble it and squeeze together and it's beautiful and I'd heard this texture but I'm a chef and I thought there's no soil that looks like chocolate cake. <laughs> uh, really, you know, that's just made up. That's gardener's talk for something that, you know. Um, and then I went on to this guy's farm and, and where he's, he's growing essentially just paddock crops, but he's got, you know, all sorts of things like corn and soy and oats and, uh, and millet and all sorts of stuff growing in the middle of his grasses. He, he, was, he was a very awkward guy to talk to, but when he dug into the soil, his eyes came alive and he's pulling it out and he's showing me all the worms and the springtails and the mites and, 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 and pulling it out and sniffing it and almost eating it. Mm. And it's that moment of realising that what, you're, what you, you're seeing, whether it's a farm or a garden, you know, all that lovely stuff that, that is growing above ground is representative of this amazing thing that's happening underneath. Um, and, and that the beauty of a garden, I now see, I, when I see it, or a farm or whatever, or a, a landscape, I think of what's... That, that beauty is representative of, of this whole other ecosystem that we have to use our imaginations for. Mm. Long answer, but... Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, nice. The, the, nice. the hidden garden. The hidden garden, yes, mm. exactly. Yeah. What about you, Costa? Yeah, a few things came to mind. You, you're stirring me up in terms of my passion for rural... Uh, Keyline and Percy Yeomans and Jeff Wallace and building soil and and so on. But the, the the one that comes to mind in terms of the garden of my mind is my godfather's property in the Bylong Valley, in um, just near Mudgee in New South Wales. You probably know it about all the the the, the very dubious mining licences that went on there and and so on and so forth. Um, but that I took my first steps there, and I think. There's something about that. But here's the interesting kicker of that. I, I see that property. I've drawn it. You know, when you go on a retreat or something and they say, draw the, the most relaxing place. I draw this farm. I know that the old, you know, sandstone house with the balcony and you had to go down and cross the creek and all this. I can draw that for you. And I've driven past it in my life since. But I've refrained from going there because... I don't want to look at that property through the eyes of a landscape architect, through the eyes of an environmental educator, through the eyes of a TV presenter, through the eyes of whoever the hell I am now, because I want that remain safe, even though I've been invited back out there and I'm really torn. So you want to see it through the eyes of a child? Right? I want it to remain yeah. as, as, yeah. as the garden of my childhood. Um, and a, more prescriptive, to answer the question very prescriptively, 
the garden where I lived when I, I lived in, in the Vienna woods in a place called Weidlingbach um, for, for many years. And this is just out on the outskirts of Vienna. And my friend's property there, I was building nature ponds and rooftop gardens and we we're doing community composting back in the 90s. I mean, we're talking like 20 years ahead. And, and my friend had the business and his partner was a landscape architect and she made the most incredible meadows and understood all that. And their garden, we built a biotop, a nature pond in the front yard, but the backyard was this steep slope and they had fruit trees on there. And I experienced all the seasons there, the snow, where you're walking through thick snow and it's freezing cold. But then to be there in summer and have friends come over from Australia and sit there and literally pick nectarines and peaches off these trees that were just beyond biodynamic, they were beyond organic, they were just as nature has them. And, and I think about that and I see the flowers, I see the nature pond swimming in that, sitting on the hill, looking at the v Viennese Alps, and I think, wow, my senses implode. I want to go to that garden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. When I first started gardening, I knew nothing about how to grow edibles, particularly in pots on a, on a balcony on the 13th floor uh, in the middle of the city. And I planted some tomatoes, which I thought, okay, that's a good place to start. I love tomatoes. And they're often the things that don't taste as good as we remember as kids. So I thought they will taste better homegrown. But I had no idea what to do. And as the tomatoes grew, the plants, they got more and more stringy and there were side shoots and it was all very confusing. And the books would say, you know, pinch the, the side shoots and you'll get bigger um, uh, fruit. I didn't know what to do, but my husband, fortunately, uh, stepped in and said, this is what you do. You pinch these side shoots and you'll get bigger fruit. And I said, how do you know what to do? You're not a gardener. And he said, well, I used to grow dope in the 70s. And <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're the same family, dope and tomatoes. So you pinch the side shoots and you get bigger heads on your dope plants, just like tomatoes. And we got an amazing crop of tomatoes that summer. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, gentlemen, have you ever been tempted to grow anything illegal with your massive gardening skills? Because we've got an audience, Byron Bay based, and I'm sure many of them are probably growing some of this stuff right now. Yeah, um, I, I have this a bit, because we, I, I live in southern Tasmania, there was a whole bunch of hippies moved there, not quite as many as moved up here um, oh. uh, last century. <laughs> And, um, and, and when I talk about soil and I talk about some of the things soil, everyone thinks of, that we've been sitting around in Kumbaya circles smoking something that we grew in the greenhouse. Um, but uh, lots of people around us do grow stuff like that. A guy near us, he had the police visit one day. He lives up a hill uh, off, off grid. And they came to visit and um, they came to chat to him about something. And he was really nervous mm. uh, because he had dope growing all around the place. And um, uh, he was always out gardening and had this record player that would play music to him and his dope plants. And he was really worried as these cops. Anyway, they were looking for something. I think they were looking for, I don't know, illegal immigrants or something. And they walked away. But before they walked away, one of the cops said, oh, there's a bit of a crime being committed here. And he says, oh, crap, they've discovered my dope. And it, apparently it was no, there was Barry Manilow on the... Um... <laughs> <laughs> That's a horrific crime. Horrific crime. Horrific. Uh, anyway, we... we, we Tried to grow some tobacco. Well, we did, um, and, but none of none of us smoked tobacco. Um, so I think we did it just to be naughty. Well, apparently the story goes, and you may may know more about this, Costa. The reason, part of the reason why California became such a food bowl, is it became an area where uh, Americans were growing dope, 
uh, after they closed the Mexican border and closed the, the dope trade. And so those gardening skills that those early dope farmers got, they then put into cultivating food in, in California. So there is a connection between growing dope successfully and, and being a good gardener. It's probably the only, like if you look at, uh, you know, the Bureau of Stats came out last year with, you know, professions, the lowest money you can earn is a market gardener, the next one's a farmer, the next one up is hospitality worker. But I reckon if you want to make money growing something, you know, and not be the bottom tier, um, <laughs> is, you'd have to be growing something illegal. Yep, you would. <laughs> Costa, you want to dog well, yourself You're in? a living example of that. You and Mark, <laughs> like, you know, he transferred his dope growing skills onto your tomatoes. Just the skills, just the, the skills. Way. Yeah. Um, oh, look, the anecdote that comes to mind is I'll do talks in different places and you'll be standing there after the talk and people come up and they have a question, oh, I've got a problem with my tomatoes, got a problem with it. And there'll always be sort of just someone lurking around in the back and I'll be like, okay, here we go. And, and I, if I had a microphone, I could say, right, and, and they wait until all the questions, and they're very patient because they're, and they wait and wait and say, oh, I'm just got a question I need to ask you about hydro. <laughs> And I said, how high is it growing? <laughs> um, is it sort of ceiling-based propagation? And, uh, and then, yeah, they always, they always come clean and ask me, me that. But I, I think the best one for me is, like, my great-aunts and things and other friends' great-aunts, like the Greeks, they come out and they've been growing it and having it as medicinal teas and, you, you know, using it for... for you know, ages. Um, and, you know, they've got the, the, them growing in the front yard. And I remember my friends <laughs> going over to their aunt's places and just seeing this thing and going, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> this is in the front yard. But I think it's that, it's been that classic example of, of um, do it so blatant, obviously, that no one will see it. Um, mm. so, so, yeah, it's had a little bit of an undertone um, from a horticultural point of view mm. in, in Greek culture, um, the, yayas, the yayas know how to grow a mean head. <laughs> when my family first moved to Australia, we settled in Tasmania, in St Mary's, just mm. up from where you live, and uh, it was very hard in the mid-70s to get Indian herbs and, and seeds and spices, so our relatives in South Africa would of, often just post them in, in the mail, illegally, because you couldn't send that stuff. So they'd wrap them in saris, fabric and things like that and, and send it in the mail. And we got a, a delivery of a, a packet of seeds that were meant to be coriander seeds. And mum was so excited, fresh coriander in Tasmania and we'd built a glass house so that it could grow in that weather. And she tended to them and watered them and planted them very carefully. And the first shoots took root and she was so excited and, you know, looking after them. And as they grew and grew... And uh, she, you know, they should have been ready to harvest. And she said, this doesn't quite really look like the coriander I remember. And she called my dad into the garden to inspect them. And he just started laughing and said, do you know what you've been doing, Sylvie? <laughs> you've been looking after a marijuana crop. So my, her younger brother had sort of played a bit of a trick on her and sent marijuana seeds in the, in the mail <laughs> instead of coriander. And unfortunately uh, for Dad, because he thought, yeah, this is great, I've got a marijuana crop starting off. Mum just ripped them all out and said, no, she was horrified by it completely, which is really funny. When it comes to the power of gardens, we've all seen uh, this ongoing you know, fight in cities between developers and green space and garden space. It's happened to farm farmland as well. You're, you know, we have 
you know, extension of building of housing and properties and things and uh, and suburbs. How do we maintain green spaces? All the understanding that we need these spaces for our well-being, our health, our food systems. A lot of our food systems are disappearing. The food bowls in our country. Is our gardens a way for people to understand the importance of these green spaces? Do they play a bigger role than just a, a pretty place to grow a few herbs and flowers? Uh, yeah, un undoubtedly. I guess um, it, it is the gateway drug, isn't it? Um, your home garden or your, your pot plant or whatever to, 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 to something bigger. Um, I think any connection... like the, this. The, the mere act of planting a seed, which you talked about earlier, is, is the ultimate act of optimism. You know, the, so, so whenever you're involved in the growing of food, you, you are inherently optimistic. But we now know there's all sorts of science around you know, the, the, the reasons why there's, not, you know, there's no grumpy gardeners. Yet there are happy hormones that are released in the brain when you, when you work in a garden or even walk through a garden or, or eat stuff from, a, from healthy soil. Um, there, are thing, there, are, there, there are lots of reasons why working in a garden. It's good for your back, it's good for your soul, it's good for, good for your mind. Um, it's good for your microbiome. It's good for mental health in terms of there are things that get come from healthy soil that, that are passed straight through your, your body, you know, uh, uh, your digestive system into your, into your bloodstream and into your brain unchanged that, it, you know, have these amazing uh, effects on us. And so anytime you're exposed to that is, is, um, is a beautiful uh, moment. And, and the only way, I guess, you know, I, I come from a non-gardening background, the only way to get an appreciation of of you know, farming, where food comes from, of parklands, of, of other gardens, is to, to, is to have some exposure yourself. Because until you do that, you, you don't really understand how amazing it is, how joyful it is, and how important it is. Costa? Yeah, I, I think going on, onward from what you talked about, and I mean, you've just written a, an entire book about soil. Banging on. And... Um, <laughs> The soil is, is the driver, it's the engine room. The, the, the planet relies on soil, even though we must recognise that we should be calling it planet ocean, not planet Earth, because there's more water than there is, there's more ocean than there is land. But the thing is, we can't protect what we don't understand. So when someone says, oh, we need more biodiversity, oh, we need more green space, like, that's just talk, they're just words, until you're actually in a garden, growing something, seeing plants, understanding the connection between flowering cycles and insects, understanding, like, I can tell you that my, my frogs, no, the frogs that have a, an incredible habitat in my nature pond started up last night for the season. They're on, the little Perrin's tree frogs, and it's, and, and, when you then understand that the quality of that water determines the success, the life or death of those frogs, of the dragonflies, of all the other insects that they are predated on by the birds. You want birds, you can't just have birds, hang bird seed out there. That's, that's a road to nowhere. We need the plants to bring the insects, which are the proper food. And so when you think about that, gardening is exactly that dovetail in because you can start to understand ecology, you can start to understand biodiversity by the smallest of pot plants bringing a flower which brings an insect. And when that insect comes because of some of your action, then you become intimately connected. And when you become connected, 
then you have the understanding. If you have the understanding, then if someone comes along and starts spraying the footpath for weeds, you will get mongrel and fire up. And that's what we need. We need it more than ever because our wild places are being encroached upon by this kind of death by a thousand cuts. Oh, it's only a little bit, but we're not looking at it. And we were talking about this in, the, in some aspects of the Landcare Conference this week, that we need a, a regional bigger perspective. Otherwise, we just go, oh, it's only a little bit. It's only a little bit. But then when you look at the fact that there's been a hundred little bits, that actually makes up one freaking big bit. And how can we have a koala corridor if we say, oh, we can offset that? Mm. You know, and all of these things. So, yeah, I see the garden as the, the, the real... It's the education space. Because it is, as we said, it's the drug. It's the opportunity to get in there and say, hey... This is how nature works. How awe-inspiring is that? And I can have a little say in it. I can, I can help accelerate and regenerate and start to use this language. And if we use that language, then we don't become despair. We don't become despairing. We actually become active. We become activists. We become verbs. And, and that's what we need yeah, now so more than ever. So important. <clears throat> Matthew, you've written a very powerful treatise about soil and the importance of soil that we take for granted on our planet. Just explain to us why, why soil captured you so. Um, yeah, uh, soil captured, I, I guess captured me because um, uh, as a grower, you suddenly realise that the, 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 the thing between, you know, on our farm we grow food to, for us to eat and to, for visitors to eat. The difference between us being able to grow food and not food is, you know, it, it's five centimetres of soil and the fact it occasionally rains. And that's, that's for the, the world as a whole. So the only reason you as humans can eat food, but not just eat food, you know, wear clothes, live indoors, um, exist as a species, is because there's, on, on average, around the world, about 10 centimetres of topsoil and the fact it occasionally rains. Uh, and, and we're losing topsoil at historic rates. So we've lost, since agriculture first started, um, you know, modern agriculture, European-style farming, 10,000 years ago, we've lost about, um, we've abandoned about 40% of the world's land. So... Uh, agricultural land. In, in Australia, we've lost half our topsoil in, in 200 years. And this is the only bit that grows, does the world's growing. Without it, we, we're gone. And not only us, but all the other species that rely on, on soil. So I think that focused my mind, knowing that. And then realising that soil isn't just soil. There, there are different soils. And this, this moment of realisation, and this is going to sound really stupid to a you know, very clever audience like this, but... Um, when it, we, I used to hear about healthy soil, the guy with the, you know, the lettuce in his back, you know, from his backyard and the tomato seeds sticking on the envelopes, and he'd go, oh, I've got really healthy soil. And I'm thinking, oh, healthy, yeah, healthy soil, right, yeah, that brown stuff that, you know, you know, I rinse off the spuds. And I never thought of healthy as alive, living, actually living, you know, you know when, and then when you hear things like, you know, the, the, the amount of, you know, soil that would fit in the end of my thumb, one teaspoon of soil can have more living things in it than there are humans on the planet, 10 billion living things in a teaspoon of healthy soil, you kind of go, oh, boom, mm. soil's alive. What does that, what does that mean? What, why does it matter? What impact does that have? And I think I, I wrote a book as a love letter to, to the earth because I suddenly realised that I, a lot of people might be like me going, soil, you know, boring um, and, and not really necessarily putting it in its rightful place, which is not just under our feet but, you know, on a pedestal. Yeah.
There'll be a lot of gardeners and, and growers here in the audience. What sort of tips can you give them uh, to help maintain and improve their soil in their gardens? Oh, yeah, look, Costa would be probably better at that um, in terms of tips for, for gardens. But my, my view is, I, I, have, I take a really big picture, so you know, a view of, of, of it all, and you've all got different gardens and you can be different parts of Australia and different rainfall or whatever, but really the rules are always the same. Green living plants, because green living plants are the original food source for soil and all the things that live under soil. Um, uh, organic matter uh, within your soil or on top, so you, you, you try to always have soil covered, either with something living or with mulch. Um, diversity, so different plants have different root architecture and they, every plant gives something to soil and every plant takes something from, from soil, so always having living plants. Uh, uh, sorry, diversity of, of plants. Uh, that can be over time, so rotating crops. Um, if, you, if you've got like a veggie garden, not planting the same thing over and over. Um, they're the sort of the, the big pic picture things. Um, and, and, and never dig your soil, because, well, you know, like within reason, if you dig, you have spuds, you have to dig your soil, but um, never, wherever possible, never cutting it open, because soil, think of it, soil as, um, as, as a, rather than, you know, billions of living things, um, think of it as one superorganism. So if you cut it open, you're, you're, you're destroying it. So if you think of it as a one living thing, like my cow, would I cut it open for no good reason? No, why would I do that? If I've got a good reason, yeah, I might need to operate on a cow or do something, but you, soil's the same. What's living within dies when it's exposed to the air or it's exposed to rainfall, and, and just the mere fact of cutting it open actually cuts these fungal filaments, these, these really important threads of fungi through the soil. So never, never dig soil. Never dig soil. If you can help it. Costa, your book, uh, Costa's World, is, you know, some beautiful, again, advice and tips and you know, passionate uh, experiences you've had uh, around the country. What have you seen in your role in the last 20 years or so? What have you seen the change? Are, are people more engaged, more activated, you know, about their green spaces, about gardens? Have you seen that, that change? Yeah, I think... I think what's happening, we're, we're getting a really... I mean, when I started with Gardening Australia, I wanted to get younger people, or even when I started with SBS, I wanted to get young people exposed and into it because people were getting into it at a later age because it was sort of something that was kind of deemed to be a pathway on kind of, you know, entering a certain age bracket or retiring or this or that. And yeah. so Halfway there was, to the grave, you uh, seem to be uh, implying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. And, 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 you know, I just thought that's, that's just, that's so myopic because this is for everyone. Gardens, gardens, we live on a garden planet and, and we're, we're excluding like a whole lot of healing. We're excluding a whole lot of learning. We're excluding this opportunity to connect. And, you know, we can throw these buzzwords around. But I think what matters and what I've seen is that people are seeing the connection between it not being just this, this task, mm. but it being our habitat. We live in a garden. We live on a, on a planet. And whether it's this small balcony of yours, which has been an incredible educational tool for people that had live in the city and have no space. And you've illustrated that 500 millimetres along a seven or eight metre stretch equals the equivalent of about two two or three square metres of normal space and you're growing all this stuff. And to me, it's like seeing how, like even Matthew from a food point of view, drawing, and that's really what I've wanted to do, use different mechanisms to get people connected to, through food. Some people will come through food. Others will come through science, like they might want to come through their interest in birding, 
and you're only going to get birds if you have the plants. And if you don't have the plants in the habitat, well, you tell them they're dreaming, you know. And then someone else might be getting in there through, through wetlands and, and um, watercourses and understanding our rivers and our creeks. Someone else might be into food growing. Others are into plants and, and food forests. Someone else is into trees and, you know, arboriculture our, our and, and loving how, what trees do. Someone else wants to get involved in, in the science of, of grasses and ground covers. Someone else at soil. There's so many ways. So for me, I think what I've seen over the last 20 years is more and more people getting engaged but through different entry points. It's not just, oh, I have a garden and there's an azalea, there's a camellia. You know, then I didn't even touch on native plants and what that means for habitat and that, you know, all the regenerators, the bush regenerators, the bush adventure therapists, the land carers, when they start to care for, care for the land and you start to remove the invasive species, nature comes back. And the story we had on Gardening Australia this week was about a group that just meet once a month that's all they've been doing. Once a month for a couple of hours on a Sunday, over 20 years, over at Lovett Bay on Pitwater, and they turned a weed-infested open space corridor bushland over 20 years. They've got wallabies back, antichinus back, pygmy possums back, owls, birds, insects. That, goosebumps. Yeah. It's not going to happen overnight, but then that comes into that whole mental state of what gardening's about. It's not about faster is better. It's actually about the therapy of just turning up, meeting each other on that Sunday once a month. Matthew makes a mean, you know, chocolate brownie or whatever and Indira's got these amazing scones and we talk and that's therapy for the soul as much as it is to be with the hands in the soul as soil. So that soil and soul, I think, uh, uh, one. Mm. I wanted to ask both of you a, a question um, about an area that I think should have a garden and sorely does not, but <laughs> needs one desperately. Every time I, I go know. to Canberra, I wish I could put a garden <laughs> on top of the roof of Parliament oh. House. Ooh, yeah, wouldn't that be amazing? I would like to plant a field of, of potatoes or turnips or something. <laughs> what, what would you like to do with that space if you were given that space to grow something, Matthew? Yeah, that's a great question. Wow. Yeah, I, I used to that, that used to be open to the public. It's not it just did. It's all I was yeah. filthy when they closed. Yeah, yeah I used yeah. to run. Filthy. We, we used to, um, uh, it's hard to believe I used to be an athlete and we used to run up and down there on a Tuesday night. Um, uh, look, yeah, I, I'm not sure that the soil is deep enough, but I like to see, you know, sort of um, uh, uh, um, perennials, so, 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 so fruit and nut trees. Um, mm. uh, and then around the bases of, of those, you, you're, all your annuals being being planted, so that you, 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 there's always something to harvest. There's always something in a in a state of um, replenishment or, or or abundance. Yeah. Um, uh, that I mean, I love that idea. That and, and having that as the you know, the, the centre of our democracy or whatever, um, love or hate Canberra, uh, whatever you might think of it. Um, that's a beautiful building, and that it's covered with soil. Yeah. And we're not growing anything except grass, and we're not even grazing cows there. <laughs> yeah. It's that, yeah, what a great example. That would be for the nation as a whole. This is productive land, beautiful land. And the politicians would be the farmers. We'd make them do it. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, give them all respect for It soil. would. What about you, Costa? What would you grow on Parliament House, Ruth? You know, speaking of that, there, many of you wouldn't realise that there's a, 
parliamentary friends of soil, there's a parliamentary friends of regenerative agriculture, there's a parliamentary friends of landcare, and two of the pollies were at the landcare conference on the, during the week, and, uh, and I made the point that we need to progress that to the point where we have a ministry of fertility with a minister of compost yeah. and soil. <laughs> Love because it. that's the progression that we need to go because when we have a Ministry of Fertility, then every decision made by that parliament underneath the garden that Matthew explained has to go through the Ministry of Fertility to get the ticks or the crosses. Um, what would I grow on there? I remember when we went down there and did a story, um, I was quite compulsive at the time. I was in the Prime Minister's courtyard and there were all these weeds in the crack, so I sat there while we were waiting just weeding the Prime Minister's courtyard at the time. I think it was when Malcolm was in. Um, but, yeah, I was very upset about that Being closed go going up. Like, it's like, what? You, you can't see people up there. Like, why do we need another wall? And that was also at the same time when, you know, suddenly, you know, there's just all that fear-driven stuff, which, which really, that's the people's place and the people should be able to walk over that and we should be growing something on it, not having it as some place of desolation. So, yeah, I would love to see meadows. Mm. I would love to see all sorts of native plants representing the seasons and, and even some of the different states as well, some of the different emblems. And, you know, really turn it into an educational, a horticultural educational space. And, Sounds um, wonderful. Yeah, let's do it, eh? <laughs> and uh, I'd like to nominate Costa as our first minister for compost. <laughs> hey? Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, In absentia. Thank, <laughs> please thank Costa Giojardis and Matthew Evans. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2022. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com forward slash digital.